Welcome, everybody, to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Professional Wrestling History, and writer on the Segunda Kaida blog. We are here today to discuss the Moondogs versus the Fabulous Ones from June 13th, 1983, and I am joined by one of those Fabulous Ones, the great Steve Kern. Steve, this is a, a thrill for me, and I really appreciate you doing this. Wow, I'm humbled, Phil, and a thrill for you. All the people you've talked to, I'd probably be way down that oh, list. Man, are you but kidding thanks. me? Are you kidding me? We're talking about an icon of my childhood. I've talked to a bunch of peers. That's not who cares about them. I, you know. <laughs> so we're we're discussing this match specifically, but sort of generally. Uh, uh, of this feud and sort of your history uh, with, you know, in the fabulous ones before and after, we're kind of going to touch on it all. Um, but let's start by talking a little bit about how the fabulous ones were formed. So I, uh, so fill me in a little bit about, you know, how that, because one of the great tag teams of professional wrestling history, fill me in a little bit about how you and, uh, and Stan Lane hooked up and how that whole thing happened. Okay, well, let me see how I can condense this enough that it's not dragged out for you. But I was actually working in um, Atlanta at the time against Kevin Sullivan, and we were both baby faces. And Kevin turned on me on television and um, beat me for the, I think, the Georgia TV title by sucker punching me, allowing me to come back through the ropes. Anyway, long story short, can't trust the devil, Jerry, right, Steve? I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But right um, about that time, Jerry Jarrett, who was promoting over in the Tennessee Territory, came back to the promoter there, who was Jim Barnett, and said, listen, Tommy Rich isn't working out for us. He had taken Tommy Rich off of um, national television and taken Tennessee, but wasn't satisfied. And he says, I want to bring Tommy Rich back. And Jim Barnett said, well, sure. He said, you know, you can pick any two guys I got. And if they're willing to go, you know, you can have them. So Jerry came to the Omni at the time. And Kevin and I had a match in the Omni where it was a pretty hardcore match. I mean, you know, we fought all the way to the top of the Omni. We got out of the ring. We were all over the building. And Jerry Jarrett says, I'm going to take those two guys. So that was Kevin and myself. And anyway, I went to Tennessee. Um, when I got to Tennessee, Kevin and I worked the angle, continued the angle off of national television, which was unusual for their territory. And when we got there, Kevin wasn't really excited about being in Tennessee, and he was ready to move on after a short time. And so I kind of like set my roots in there, but it was a little bit difficult for me to adjust. I had wrestled mostly in NWA territories like of course, Florida and Georgia, um, the Carolinas, and it was all the same style. It was the Jack Briscoe style. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but it was more wrestling than it was brawling. It was more, you know, kind of emotional wrestling that got you caught up in the movement, everything, so far as how to do the moves. And anyway, the angles were pretty serious and I was under tutelage of Eddie Graham, who was one of the greatest minds in wrestling and had the greatest finishes and character builder. And so 
um, my education was more a stiff <laughs> wrestling style. When I got to Tennessee, it didn't really fit. You know, I, I, I was having a hard time making an adjust, adjustment and adapting to their style, which was a little bit more entertainment style. Right. But, um, On your feet a little more, right, know, in, in Memphis. You, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Memphis wrestling and the NWA style too, but it's definitely a lot more back and forth punching, a lot more sort of on your feet. You didn't see as many guys take it to the mat and grapple in, uh, in Memphis as much as you would see in, you know, Florida or something like that for sure. Oh, yeah. Working against Ole and Gene Anderson with Tiger Conway Jr. as a partner, working against, you know, guys like Harley Race and Ric Flair when they were the world champions and all of that. When I got to Tennessee, I was kind of like an oddball stuck, you know, a round peg in a square hole. And I wasn't ready to change styles, but Bill Dundee that had been there for years kind of like, you know, came to me one time and said, you know, you're going to have to change. He said, you're going to have to do, you know, more entertainment stuff to get over here. So I said, you mean like midget high spots or what? And he said, yeah, if that's what it is. He said, people want to laugh. They want to, you know, get mad. They want all these different emotions. So I started studying the matches. Anyway, I had an elbow injury and I had an operation at Vanderbilt. I lived outside of Nashville and Hendersonville and I had an elbow injury and we worked an angle with Bobby Eaton and Coco Beware, and it was me and Bill Dundee, and I got my arm hooked in the rope, and they beat it with a chair, and anyway, I was out for a while. Well, I had surgery, and the reason was is I couldn't straighten my right arm. I had bone chips lodged in my right arm, and it wouldn't straighten. And so it didn't really get fixed, but in the process of that time period, Jerry Jarrett comes to me, and he says, you know, I'd grown a beard. And Jerry Jarrett comes to me and he says, listen, I got this great idea. And he said, um, I'd like to put you and Stan Lane together. And I had worked against Stan when he first came in. He was a heel and I was a babyface, so we had worked matches against each other. But he said, I'd like to put you together and have Jackie Fargo endorse you as the Fabulous Ones. And I'm going, eh, you know, I don't know. And he said, well, why don't we give it a try? And so... MTV was red hot at the time and nobody had done any music videos. And so we did some filming to a couple of different popular songs, ZZ Top, Sharp Dress Man, Billy Squire, Everybody Wants You. And we did some kind of, you know, goofy stuff when you look back <laughs> at it. But for the time period, it was very progressive. It was like kind of you either going to like this or you're going to hate it. And it really got over. I mean, you know, it, you know, I, in my heart, I believe it was all because of Jackie Fargo. I mean, Jerry Jarrett created it. There's no doubt about it. But Jackie Fargo was an icon in that area. And then him and the Fargo brothers had been, had quite a run in there for years and years and were well-respected and over like Rover. I love, and he love Jackie Fargo. He's like one of those guys who you don't. There's not a ton of footage of, but every time you see him, you're like, "Holy hell, that guy was uh, a tremendous performer. Oh, yeah. Some of the best punches Absolutely. ever." <laughs> well, and, and plus, you know what a scrapper. And you know Jackie Fargo 
him endorsing us and saying, these are my boys and these are the Fargos, just the uh, futuristic Fargos, the fabulous ones. I mean, he made us. And, you know, it was kind of one of those character switches where you're coming in and I felt almost like we were Chippendale dancers, you know? So I go, oh man, the men are going to hate us. I mean, you know, they're just going to be like, they're not going to like this group, you know, they're just going to be going, oh, no, I don't want to like these guys. But because Fargo put us over so strong, and we did some of his, you know, strutting and some of his movements and stuff like that, incorporated them, it got over unbelievable. And Stan and I got the ball, and we ran with it. And once we got going... You know, all of a sudden, now it's time to turn on to who we're going to work against and then what are we going to look like and how are we going to respond. And one of these two guys, the future fabulous ones that were one-time Fargo uh, fabulous people. So it, just, it was just an instant success. But we had to incorporate something different that people in that area hadn't seen. And it really turned out to be the number one ingredient was violence. I mean, you know, I can't describe it any other way. I mean, the great thing about the Fabulous Ones as a team is they had the videos and the Chippendales thing, and you're both good-looking guys, and obviously, you know, the the, lady, the girls loved you. But then when you got in the ring, it's like, holy hell, these guys are going to beat the shit out of each other, uh, out of their opponents, and, beat the sh- and they're going to take a huge beating. And it's like, if you're a guy who loves wrestling, you can't boo these guys too much because they're really getting in there and, and, and throwing hands and throwing chairs and throwing tables and ring bells. And, and I think that was probably the secret. You're right about that being the secret sauce, at least looking at it from a you know historical standpoint. You get the sense of, man, you can see why these guys got so over because they had the good looks and the and the Chippendale uh, uh, deal for the women. And then for the guys, they're going to get in there and have some of the the most, uh, the wildest brawls you're going to ever see. Well, I I agree, you know, and and it was something that we just took it day by day. But in those days, territorials, um, were different than what's going on nowadays. Of course, we were in the same city 52 times a year. Every week we'd be in Memphis on Monday night, every week, Louisville on Tuesday night, we had to keep out doing ourselves and we had to keep the pace going. And what we found was the good formula that worked in there was, and what made us unique was being able to take a lick and keep on ticking. I mean, no matter what was handed to us and how, what kind of violence we were faced with, like I had a lot of country people that lived in those areas come to me and say, you know, my dad wasn't sure he liked you, or my grandpa wasn't sure that he liked the fabulous ones because they were pretty boys. But then after he watched you, he goes, well, them boys are pretty tough. I like them boys. And that's what made the difference, Phil. I mean, you know, it wasn't just doing the Chippendale kind of like, hugging and kissing the babies and the women going to the ring. It was like getting down and dirty when it was time, you know, reaching the bottom of the pit and grabbing whatever you could. And even Paul Heyman back in those days approached me later on when I was an agent in the WWE. And he said, you know, I got my whole idea for ECW watching the fabs working that territory against sheep herders and bushwhackers. He said, you guys used everything in that building and, and hardcore hadn't even been invented yet. It was almost like you had to turn to hardcore 
to be different, to be exciting, and to draw people in to walk, coming and watching every week. Yeah. So we did. Yeah, and the, this this particular match was sort of one in a long series of of matches against the Moondogs. I probably could have written about any of them. I think I, I when I was I, I knew that when I wanted to that I, when I was putting this book together, I knew I wanted a Fabs Moondogs match on there. And there's not as much footage of Fabs sheep herders as there is this Fabs Moondogs. Just the weird thing about Memphis tapes is it's very spotty where you'll have a bunch for a couple months and then nothing exists for six months and so there's a fair number of Fab Foondogs things and I think I just watched them all and I was like I think I like this one the best and it's the shortest match of my book by a lot I think maybe from bell to bell it's about two minutes long because the ref pretty much immediately yeah. goes I can't control this I'm ringing the bell and then you guys just kept fighting and using ring bells and and, and and chairs and tables and things like that how did the how was the aftermath of working those kind of matches three or four times a week for a couple months like did you guys end up I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of people think that those kind of matches are harder on the body than regular wrestling matches, but you know, it certainly hurts to take bumps in the ring as and suplexes and and you know, arm bars as well. How did you sort of end? Well, well, you know, the old adage that people don't understand is, you know, they they point a finger at the industry and they point a finger at the business and say, oh, that's all fake. But here's the deal: it's not because the realistic part of it is not everybody's good at it. And when you're dealing with emotions and guys getting fired up, and the one thing I really hated about working against the Moondogs was them damn bones. They would carry these big, big, I don't know if they were hip bones off of a cow or what they were, but Larry Latham was horrible with hitting you with that bone. I mean, he took a piece of my head scalp hair and all one time off that never came back <laughs> and all he can uh, the most misused phrase in wrestling is hey i'm sorry i mean you know what else are you gonna say but you know whenever there's a weapon involved and they came with bones in their hands and my retaliation was as a little bit more experienced in stand and i'd had some violent issues like with bob group and other angles in Florida. And so <clears throat> well, we're talking about Bob Roop. That's coming up for sure later yeah, in the was, podcast. <laughs> okay. I was used to, I had adapted to blood and guts, but I had also adapted to picking something up and whether I was good with a chair or whether I wasn't, I was going to hit you. I took pride in, in getting the audience their full money's worth because they're on that edge of their throne of decision where they're thinking, wow, was that real? That looked pretty real. Well, a lot of times my opponents thought, thought it was real too because that I really whacked them. I mean, you know, once I got hit with a bone, pretty soon I was hitting Larry Latham with boards as hard as I could. And I, I even seen him break later and go, you know, that board was pretty stiff. I don't know how I broke it, but I might, Larry took a hell of a shot. But it was just like that. The sheep herders had a flagpole, and of all kinds of, you know, things to carry with, they carried a flagpole that was a water pipe. I mean, it wasn't even aluminum. This damn flagpole, Jonathan Boyd at the time was one of the sheep herders, hit me with that flagpole a few times. And I thought, you know, I'd been knocked out, and I was just seeing things, looking up at the lights, and I'm going like, wow, 
what a lick that was, but it kind of gave me more of that intensity and anger. Okay, well, you got me, but I'm getting ready to give you a receipt, and that's what we called it. Um, once I got hit good, pretty soon I was hitting pretty good back. So, I mean, you know, you can get out of hand, and we did, but it was very successful, and it was monumental. I mean, you know, I'm on a lot of groups right now that are out of Memphis. I mean, you know, so on Facebook, there's a, like five or six Memphis groups, and I'm constantly adding pictures from the past or updating people of what I'm doing now. But at the same time, there's a fan base there that never forgot us. I mean, you know, we, we, we made an impression on a lot of people growing up and, you know, their families as they watched us because if they, they talk about the sheep herders, the fabulous ones, the moon dogs, and those angles still to this day. Yeah, I'm an enormous fan of Memphis wrestling. It's some of my favorite stuff ever and, and really is, uh, you know, the variety of it and the entertainment of it. And then obviously when you got down to these epic matches, whether it was Moondogs, Fabs, or Lawler Mantel, or Dundee Lawler, I mean, just as good as it, as good as it gets. Right. And, uh, and, uh, you know, like every time any, any sort of new Memphis footage will show up in the ether, it's always like Christmas day for me. Oh man, are you kidding me? I didn't know this existed. I get to watch it. Uh, you know, that's, which is obviously, you know, the book is really a, a, the kind of the kind a, just a, a, a here's a hundred matches I found digging deep in the crates of the, of all of this footage that you have over the years, and and I, you know, the Memphis stuff is is really really tremendous and still super entertaining. And you guys had your run in Memphis, and then after that went to the AWA. Is that was the next thought, or did you go to Florida? No, we went to the AWA. Um, we had a little bit of. Um um, I don't know how you say it. It wasn't the meeting of the minds, but in Louisville, Kentucky on a night, my son had just been born um, in uh, Hendersonville on a, a late Monday night. We had come back from Memphis. <clears throat> my wife is pregnant, and when I came home, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. She said, I need to go to the hospital. Well, went to the hospital, and my son was born. And then we went, you know, I spent the day with her, but then we went to uh, Louisville that night. And while we were there, Lawler was kind of the booker at the time. And Lawler said, well, you guys got to, you guys are going to be in Evansville tomorrow night, but I want you to stay over and go to Evansville and do an AM radio station, some interviews. And I go, AM, I said, you know, uh, I'm, you know, my son, my son was just born. I said, I can't do that. I'm going home. I'm going home tonight to be with my family. And <clears throat> Lawler kind of got yeah, a little pushy with me, and I didn't. I'm, I wasn't the kind of guy that you wanted to push in those days. Maybe now, but not then. And when he did, I kind of fired up, and he ended up locking himself in his dressing room. And me and Stan just walked up into the audience and said bye, and we we left. And when we left. <clears throat> We got a hold of Vern Gagne because if they were switching talent out back in those days, I mean, you know, Nick Bockwick was flying down defending the title. And, I mean, you know, uh, Lawler was going up there. And just, you know, there was a, a mutual admiration for the talent there. So Vern um, Gagne said, yeah, we'll take you. And so that's how we ended up in the AWA. It was kind of off of not a really good business move on my part at the time. 
but it was kind of like I stood my ground and, you know, you make choices in your life and I felt right about my choice and I, I took the choice and Stan just followed along. I mean, you know, Stan was easy to convince a lot of times to do things and so he let me take the lead and when I said, I'm, I'm walking on these guys. I mean, if they're going to let me go home tonight, this is the most important night of my life. I'm, you know, I, I need to go home. And he said, I'm with you. So we were gone. And then we went to the AWA and Vern wasn't sure what we were. I mean, he was so confused by the fabulous ones. He must have come to me five times and said, are you guys heels or are you baby faces? I can't figure it out. <laughs> and I go, well, whatever you want us to be. I mean, you know, we had worked for Bill Watts. And, you know, his territory is heels. We worked Tennessee as baby faces. So the character worked either way. It's how you present it on television. So, anyway, I mean, you know, we were we were working angles then with the Road Warriors, and the Road Warriors came in, and they were from Minneapolis, but they hailed from Chicago. And we'd, you know, we'd go to Chicago, and the people be booing us like we're the heels coming out, and they would be, you know, out of their minds over the Road Warriors. And I mean, you know, it was just kind of a role reversal, but. Vern was confused. I mean, even the Crusher, they tried to give him as as a manager. They gave us the Crusher one night in Chicago, and he looked at us and he goes, "You know, I'm supposed to get you guys over, but you know, (laughs) it's going to be a tough one." And when we came out of the tunnel at the Rosemont Horizon, we were hit with a spotlight, and the Crusher was in the middle of us, and there was cops. And I don't know why these guys felt <laughs> compelled to jump the rail, but three or four brothers, I don't know if there was three or four in the melee, but three or four brothers tried to attack me and stand. And the minute they jumped the rail and tried to come flying into us, the spotlight went off of us because we got a little confused there with a little bit of a fight going on. And then I just kind of stood back and watched, and I watched these Chicago cops beat these guys with billy clubs relentlessly and then handcuff them by their ankles. And when the lights came on, me and Stan are standing there. The Crusher's confused. He's old. He's confused about what happened. But the crowd popped. They went out of their minds. They thought we had beat up these four guys that had tried to jump us and, and, and beat them unbelievable. And the cops were dragging them back down the ramp. And the road warriors were standing in the ring. And they went from getting cheered to all of a sudden we got a whole new respect out of the audience. that that was something they had never seen wow. before. You know, I never told anybody in the audience, oh, no, I never touched anybody, but, you know, I just went with it. I just went with it. It sounded good to me. So. Right, was the, you've got anyway, the truth. And the, I don't want to get off track for you too far. The, so. hey, this, is, this is what this podcast is like, uh, Steve. We just kind of chat. And, what, and if I could hear a, okay. a, a story about you, about a Chicago street fight with the Crusher and five cops, I'm going to hear about that six days of the week and twice on Sundays. It's very, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's funny. Hard to work must be hard to work heel against the Road Warriors, right? Because those are well, you know, that's a team that those were guys were kind of famous for not allowing their opponents to get a tremendous amount on them. Uh, well, we were actually we were actually the baby faces, but that was Vern's fault. Vern Gagne, 
I, you know, I didn't know much about Vern. I heard he was a tyrant before I ever went up there. I heard he was like really demanding and, you know, just, you know, hard to deal with business wise. But one of the guys I went to high school with, uh, Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollet had just left there and Terry had been attacked by Vern and Terry front face locked him and choked him out. And so Vern had a little bit of the wind taken out of his sail by the time me and Stan got there. And Vern depicted us as babyface, sent us to a babyface dressing room and the road warriors to a heel dressing room. But the, the road warriors were actually from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the first night we worked, all their buddies were there. They had been bouncers there, you know, grown up there. And all their buddies were there. And then me and Stan come out and look like two guys off of a, wedding cake in san francisco and they're going like wait a minute how can these guys be the good guys and that was that was our first real bad run in with them we had already worked against them a couple of times but they had this preconceived notion that they were over as baby faces even though everybody was booking them as heels and they didn't want to do anything that was like a heel movement I mean, I even suggested to Hawk one time, I said, man, you guys are never going to be heels unless you do something like powder on a comeback and go hug each other on the floor or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, you guys, you just like, I like you and I'm working against you. So you're not, you're not real heels. And so we wanted to be the heels, but Vard was convinced he's going to do it his way. So he had us booked his baby faces against him. And it was a struggle at the beginning. But over a time period, we got respect. That very first night in Minneapolis, people booed us unreal going to the ring. And when we got in the ring, this was another famous story in wrestling history. But when we got in the ring... We were supposed to beat the Road Warriors the very first night out. And it was going to be a simple finish that we had done previously around with other people that really worked well because Stan and I looked so much alike from a distance that we were going to do a deal where somebody, we had double knockout and Stan would be close to the apron and I would come into the ring and draw Hawk and Hawk would go out get pushed out by the referee and I'd jerk Stan to the floor and roll in into the position that Stan was in and be the fresh guy with nobody knowing it. And then when Hawk come to get me, I'd just hook him real quick for a one, two, three. Well, it was simple to us. And that was what was told in the dressing room. But when we got to the ring and I'd been working 10, almost 15 years at the time. So I'd experienced a lot. And so when we got to the ring, I'm bouncing around because I go into a zone when we're in front of a new audience and a large audience. I'm trying to figure them out, and I'm just bouncing around. I'm pretty psyched out. And Stan goes in to meet the referee to get checked, and all of a sudden I hear out of the distance, we're not doing the finish. <laughs> Fuck, Vern, Ganya. <laughs> we're going over. And so I thought when he said that, he was like joking. And I kind of like come up on the scene pretty quick there. And I said, what? And Hawk took it like I was standing up to him, you know, like, oh, yeah. And Hawk, like, give me a double fist in the chest, you know, and 
just sailed me. And then we went at it, and I was selling before we knew it. And then, you know, of course, I was smarter than them, and I claimed that. And there's several times that, you know, this has been recorded, one time on a smart, on um, shoot videos with us and one time with them. And there's always two sides to a story. But my rec recollection was from this whole thing that, I mean, we just took an ass whipping the whole time we were in the ring. And finally, I got press slam. They only knew like four moves, clothesline, press slam, you know, jump off on you, whatever. But I'd been press slammed enough to get a pilot's license that night. And I, the last time I got press slammed, I just tagged Stan, just stood up and tagged, just walked away from the heat and let uh, Stan come in to make a comeback. He got grounded pretty quick. And, you know, I knew we weren't going to be doing the finish. So I rolled out and went to Memphis style wrestling. I come in with a chair and I was shooting with the chair. I wasn't working the chair. I was hitting everybody as hard as I could hit them. And we got disqualified, and the audience went ballistic. They loved us. I mean, you know, I don't, you, you figure it out. I couldn't. But the only thing was, was when we went back to the dressing room, Vern come in cussing me out. And he's screaming in my face. And at, at the time, again, that wasn't a great idea. So... One of my high school buddies had already smartened me up, just stand up to him. So I did and said, you're in the wrong dressing room yelling at the wrong guys. And so we had to go back out into a battle royal after this. And I looked at Stan and said, I ain't going to that battle royal. They're going to kill us. <laughs> I said, they didn't like what just happened. I mean, you know, they, they didn't like not, you know, the way that the whole thing ended. And we got a real pop off of just, standing up to him in the ring as a shoot. So we had already made a lot of friends over the years in there that I had had and come through Florida, like Larry the Axe Henning, Billy Robinson, Brad Rangans, um, the Claw, Baron Von Rasky. And these guys were all shooters. I mean, in the babyface dressing room was full of shooters. And when I, when I came in, I said, they were stood up and gave me a standing ovation and stand. And when we, we got in there, I said, well, I'm glad you like that, but we ain't going back out. And they go, oh, yes, you are. And we go, oh, no, we're not. And they go, oh, yes, you are. And sure enough, when we went back to the ring, those guys that were in the babyface dressing room stretched Hawk and Animal, when they got in the ring, Hawk was the fiery one. Joe was a good guy. Hawk was the one that would kind of lose control. And Hawk was going to come in and just beat me up. <laughs> but he got taken down right away by Brad Rangans and got rubbed his nose in the mat. And Larry the Axe Henning was laying on Joe. And they were all kind of like getting pushed around. But it was almost like a movie scene because it, me and Stan ain't touching nobody, and we're here and leave the fabs alone. Leave the fabs alone from all of these guys who are badasses, and I'm going, yeah! And so so it all worked out. I mean, you know, it all we all came to a meeting of the minds from that little experience. So, anyway. Like Brad Reggins was an Olympian, right? I imagine he was a pretty tough motherfucker. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he was one of those guys, like, 
like another guy that I grew up with went to high school, Dick Slater. He was one of those guys that didn't look tough. But brother, he was tough. And he was a badass. And Brad Rygans would hurt you. And so would pretty much everybody. I mean, Larry the Axe Henning sat beside me in a car one time and leaning on me. I was thinking, I want to tell him to get his fat ass off of me, but I'm afraid to because it, he's crushing me in a car. And I don't know if he was doing it on purpose to see how much I take, but I just kept, I sucked it up. <laughs> and finally, you know, it was just like, you know, looking down at his wrist, I looked at his forearms that ran down to his wrist and it looked like a bear club. <laughs> and I'm going, man, I'd hate to have to fight somebody like this. You know, he looked like he'd never been you know, outside in the winter. <laughs> he was an indoor guy. But anyway. Uh, so you went, you said you went to high school with Dick Slater and Hulk Hogan. Uh, and Austin, and Austin Idol. And Austin Idol. Your Memphis oh, so the, the, yeah, just Dennis all McCord. in the same high school class? That is bizarre. Because those are, you know, four, um, uh, four all-time greats. I mean, you know. I, I, and Mike Graham. Also high school. They were all in some one high school class. It's like one of those. Yeah, we all graduate. We all, we all graduated here in South Tampa in an area called Port Tampa, which is the docks right beside the military base. So we grew up in a really. Um, it was kind of a military family area. Hulkster's dad was in the military and retired. Um, you know, um, Dick Slater was from a broken family, and he had a stepdad. And of course, Mike Graham's dad, Eddie Graham, he's the one that. He, he kind of rounded us up. We My dad was a prisoner in Vietnam from the time I was 13 to 21. And when Mike and I met in the 10th grade, we just made a natural bonding. And he would take me to his house, and his dad would talk to me you know, about my dad being a prisoner in Vietnam at the time. And he'd see me with a black eye or a fat lip or, you know, something wrong with me. And he'd say, what happened? I said, well, I'm hanging out with these guys, and we kind of go out on Friday and Saturday night, and we look for trouble. And it seems like when we find it, I usually end up with the short end of the whole thing because I'm getting smacked, and I'm getting, you know, I'm getting beat up. But at the same time, there's so many guys fighting that, you know, one guy's fighting here and there, and Eddie just loved it. And Eddie, you know, started, well, who, who do you hang out with? And I'm going, well, Dick Slater and Dennis McCord and Terry Bollet. And, you know, he's going, yeah. And I could see his mind working, but he had given me jobs as a kid because of my dad being gone. He gave me jobs as a kid to pick the guys up from the airport when they'd fly in, like Bill Watts or the Funks or anybody that flew in from out of town. And I had no idea, you know, what what part of wrestling wasn't real because I would see these guys up close driving them to the towns and driving them to the matches and stuff, and they all looked beat up. And the only person at my house was my mom at the time, you know, and my mom said, you want to be a wrestler? I go, uh-uh. I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an Indian chief. I don't want to be a wrestler. They're all ugly. They're getting the, they get the shit beat out of them. And she goes, well, I thought it was fake. I said, well, I thought it was too, but you tell me why they look like they do because I'd see their foreheads would be just scar tissue. I mean, Eddie Graham would take a towel and rub on his cheek 
until he rubbed into a mac burn and it would turn into a big scab and i'm oh. looking at it and i'm looking at his face and i'm going yeah i don't want to do this it wasn't until i was in college and decided that i wasn't going to be a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> because i wasn't smart enough the school that i graduated from with these other guys it wasn't the highest educational school it was called robinson high school and the only only thing you had to do to graduate was spell your first and last name and if you had your middle initial you were at the top of your class <laughs> so anyway it wasn't until later, and I went from 165 pounds and up to 245, and I got into powerlifting. And Eddie, when Mike's uh, wedding came around, I came home from college, and I was going to college and uh, right outside of Jackson, Mississippi, where Ted DiBiase lives, Clinton, Mississippi, and I got on steroids, and I blew up like a balloon. And Eddie looked at me when I came home, and he said, "Hey, you want to wrestle?" And I'm going, "Uh." -uh. <laughs> He says, well, how are you doing at college? I said, ah, not good. I'm flunking everything. I'm, I'm not really passing anything, not even PE. And he goes, well, there's a whole business waiting for you if you ever change your mind. And then that's a whole other story. But then that that's where I ended up. And so you, you started working for, for Eddie Graham in Florida. And uh, right. so tell me about your first experience bleeding in wrestling <laughs> well that's funny the um the whole thing about breaking in in the state of florida was very respectful eddie graham was very serious about his business it was a very cave-fade business separate dressing rooms no heels riding with baby faces no communication when you started there we went through uh, ass whooping for six months. Um, I was, uh, I'd go down to the Sportatorium there in Tampa, and Hiro Matsuda would have us do squats to a deck of cards. And by the time you did the squats, and then you did the push-ups, and you did everything else in a building that had no air conditioning, no windows, it was 120 with a, a ring light on, my sister could whip me, and then he would stretch you, and he'd just beat you relentlessly, and for six months, I mean, you know, you took that whipping. Even um, Terry Hulkster, he even broke Terry's leg because he wouldn't give up. He broke his leg, so, you know, we were a little confused, and I'd come home, and my mom would look at me, and she'd go, what are they doing to you? And I'd go, they're beating me up. And there again, my mom goes, well, I thought wrestling was fake. And I said, so did I. But whatever I'm learning ain't what I see on TV. And so what it was, it was a way of having him build a respect for the business. And you protected your business from that, from those days on. And then plus, no matter where you wrestled, if you if they knew you had broke in in Florida and gone through Eddie Graham and Hiro Matsuda and Bob Group and all those guys who survived, there was a respect for you. But it came to be that I finally got into the business. They finally smartened me up. They finally put me to work. I didn't know but a handful of wrestling moves, and I'd wrestle with a different old-timer every night, seven nights a week. 
Um, I was a job guy on TV, and um, Stan Hansen, of all people, came to the state of Florida. And funny thing about Stan, he had just been cut from the Baltimore Colts. I think that was what happened with him was pro football let him loose, and he had done some work in Texas out there, and so they sent him to Florida Territory. So Eddie hooked me and Stan up as tag team partners. Well, Stan and I, I can send you a picture. We, we looked pretty close to the same. I mean, we are both kind of pudgy looking. He was leaner than he was later, but I was heavier than I was later, too. But, you know, we kind of looked a little bit. We grew these stupid-looking Fu Manchu mustaches. No offense, Hulkster, but we grew the stupid-looking Fu Manchu mustaches to try to look like and wore the same color tights. And then we really got into it. We were we were really loving what we were doing. We had an unbelievable passion for it. And I had an apartment at the time. And Stan came over one day. And either one of us were in angle matches or situations where they would, we were going to be asked to get juice or bleed. But we decided we wanted to try it anyway. So we made some blades in the apartment. And did some moves where we run each other's head into the wall and cut ourselves and we got bleeding pretty good and then we run out and jump into the swimming pool and the, my neighbors in that apartment complex would see us come running out together bleeding and dive into the swimming pool and go back in laughing and do it again but the funny part was Phil is because we were so goofy I mean to the boys you know a lot of guys didn't want to do blade jobs and stuff, but here we are just doing them on our own, practicing just in case. And we'd show up to the towns with, you know, gig marks and band-aids on our forehead, and guys are going, what the hell happened to you guys? You getting a car accident coming here? So, no, we're practicing. We're practicing bleeding, you know? So, anyway, that was my first blade job. This is actually... <clears throat> Not in matches, it was in the apartment just practicing, but I got pretty good at it as time went along. So once you're a good bleeder, you know, promoters take an eye and they scope their talent. And a lot of guys, you know, would, when they when they would cut themselves, would just cut one time and bleed a little bit. And with the sweat and punches and stuff, they'd be gone in no time. But I had a... I made it a point to uh, hang on to my blade and just keep going. And so, that, you know, okay, well, this ain't enough. Let's try this. And, you know, once, you, once you've established yourself as a guy that's willing to get a lot of blood, then you're going to kind of promote yourself up the card in those days. And that's what, one of the ways I, I excelled a little bit. So, <clears throat> so was the angle with Bob Roop your first big Hey, you mentioned the, the UNC Hanson were kind of an undercard tag team. Was the Bob Roop angle your first big angle? Absolutely. It was my, my first angle that we did where we just left, um, the, you know, the average kind of like match where you went out there and you had a finish when you went to the ring. And a lot of times, <clears throat> you know, you'd wrestle average maybe 15, 20 minutes. Back then, you had more time. There was less guys on cards, and you were seven nights a week, plus TV eight times a week. So, I mean, you know, I just kind of coasted along. And in those days, 
they considered you green for at least five years, even though you're working probably close to 400 matches a year, you're still green. You know, he's green. He's only been working two years. He's green. He's only been working three years. I started in 72 and I went a long time like into Georgia, into the Carolinas, worked against the Andersons and stuff, but we never, I never really got into a, like a blood and guts, you know, emotional, like really down to earth, as real, as close to real as you could make it kind of an angle until I worked with Bob Roop. And when we did this, you know, my dad had been a prisoner, like I said, and he had been released and he came home and it made huge coverage all over the state of Florida. And I mean, you know, he had been a two-time prisoner of war, which made him unusual. He had been a prisoner in Germany at age 19, shot out of a B-17, and then 20 years later, he shot down a Vietnam flying the fastest fighter by the first SAM missile, and he was a 14th B.O.W., and he had quite a, a, you know, array of medals. I mean, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star twice, the Congressional uh, Flying the Congressional uh, Flying Medal two or three times, five Purple Hearts. He was highly decorated. And, you know, <clears throat> we came up with this angle between myself and Dusty and Bob Roop and Jody Hamilton. And we talked about it, about, you know, approaching my dad and seeing what he'd feel like if somebody was to insult my dad on wrestling show and I got into it with him. Well, my dad was a real sport. I mean, you know, he was a very humble guy. He never, you know, talked much about all the torture he had been through and everything, and he was all willing to, whatever whatever helps you guys, you know. And so Bob went out and was with Gordon Soley, the announcer, and he starts the interview and starts talking about him having a military background and everything, and that he disagrees that, you know, my dad, Colonel Kern, was a hero. He said he was actually a coward because he allowed himself to be captured twice <clears throat> and was held by the enemy for almost nine years of his career. And he said to him that was a coward. And shortly after that, I was on the, on the run coming from the babyface dressing room, and there was one camera shoot in those days at TV, and I blew by the camera, and Bob always thought that I had hurt my ankle on the the camera but I you know I came up with this Olympic move to dive over the desk that they were both sitting at and when I did I hit my ankle on the bone on the outside right on the corner <laughs> of the desk and man I thought oh great and I just broke my leg but I beat Bob Roop with a lot of emotion and when I when Bob got pulled away and they tried to calm it down. I did an interview at that point where tears were running out of my eyes and I was very emotional. And here's the thing, Phil. The real truth was is that no matter when I spoke about me not having a dad from the time I was 13 to 21 and how emotional it was to see him for the first time, you know, and now I'm a man, I really I had a hard time telling the story. I mean, you know, even to this day when I do speeches and stuff, and they ask me to tell the story of, you know, my dad and the 
the night he came home and I hadn't seen him. And, you know, it's like I have a hard time sucking it back, even though it's been 56 years. I mean, since his shoot-down date, which was July 24th, 1965, is when he was shot down. And for me to tell the story, and then in the emotional part of the angle on television, I mean, Bob thought I was crying because I hurt my ankle. (laughs) And I said, that's not why I was crying. It didn't hurt that bad. I said, wrestlers don't cry. And I said, but, you know, sons of POWs do, you know, and so... I just, I just, I I was into what I was doing. I had, to me, the greatest gift that anybody can have that does this business is called passion. If you have a passion for what you do, you believe in what you do, and you try to do it to the best of your ability. And when I had the first opportunity, I spoke, you know, with Gordon several times doing interviews, and it was like listening to, you know really sad music to hear me talk it was horrible because at those days a baby face was so yeah that was like i'm gonna do the best i can mr Soley. i'm gonna give 100 percent and may the good may the best man win <laughs> i mean you know those are like okay boy and, and and following somebody like dusty Rhodes, i'm a towel pal too sweet to be foul baby I'm going to beat your brains out here in the last. And here I come out. Yes, sir. I'm going to do the best I can. Now, I, was a, I was a Jack Briscoe interview, and it really wasn't that dynamic. But now I had something to talk about that I believed in. So I had a little bit more emotion, and I had a lot more to say. Anyway. No, I can imagine. You know, I'm a, I'm a father. I know you're a father. And just the idea of having to be away from your kids for that long and being a son and being away from your father that long. I mean, that is, I'm emotional even hearing you talk about it, right? Just thinking about, you know, my son and, and, and my daughter. And, and I can just imagine, I mean, that's, a, you know, the best wrestling angles are those kind of angles where you, people can, you know, tap into that real emotion. Well, and I can imagine just the, the intensity of that. I mean, if you want to talk about a reason that you have to go after somebody, that's a reason you want to go after somebody. And Bob Roop is such a, was such a tremendous, he was such a tremendous interview too. Oh, right? yeah. and, and a really great wrestler. And I can just imagine the, the, uh, those matches had to be really, uh, really intense. Well, even to this day, Bob would tell you, it was probably the most intense angle he ever did in his life. He had so many death threats. He had his tires flattened. He had his car keyed. I mean, you know, people showed up in every arena that we wrestled in from Miami to Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville in uniform. They showed up in the uniforms they had worn when they were, you know, in the service. Even if they weren't in the service, they were in uniform. And it was a flag-waving, all-American thing. And I was a white cracker, all-American boy that, you know, that was fighting for my dad's respect. And it just lit them on fire. And, you know, people, I mean, you know, Bob fought his way in and out of some arenas. And even going to the car, he had quite a few run-ins with fans that were throwing rocks at him and everything. And, you know, had a gun stuck right in his face one night in West Palm Beach. I mean, you know, he could tell you more than I could tell you because we were in different dressing rooms. But then on top of all of that, 
he would have to work with me, who was young and stiff and fired up. And, you know, we we just really beat each other, you know, unbelievable. We, we didn't have regular matches. We jumped right into steel cages, right into lights out matches, Texas death matches. Anything that was no rules, they put us in. And it was it was probably about six month run of serious, serious heat and serious, serious matches with tons of blood. I don't think I can remember having a match with Bob Roop that I didn't get color on. I know I, I sent you that animation and one of the things I wanted you to take note of is Whoever did the animation of me and Bob Roop in that steel cage match in 1976 in Florida, they covered me in blood and Bob. And I don't know. Yeah, for I, sure I watched it. <laughs> I don't know as I've ever seen that before. I mean, you know, somebody creating an animation match and using juice and color. So yeah. that's that's the impression we left with that. But that was a that was a prerequisite to be. Uh, you know, moon dog and a sheep herder battler. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I imagine Bob Roop taught you know, you ran through the 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 ringer and came out knowing how to work those kind of matches. Oh. Um, you know, obviously you don't you don't want anybody to get a gun stuck in their face, but certainly that is one thing that is missing from current wrestling is that sort of intense belief, right? The fan relationship to wrestlers now is very different than it was back then. You don't, you, they're all, they all very much appreciate them as, you know, people they like to watch on TV, but they don't, you, nobody's getting guns stuck in their faces anymore. Nobody's getting, uh, nobody's jumping the rails in Chicago anymore. And, you know, maybe, and, and, you know, obviously it's safer for wrestlers as they go from there to their house, but there's certainly something a little bit missing. Uh, that kind of intensity is, is, Something that just doesn't really exist outside of maybe Puerto Rico or Mexico. Oh, uh, yeah, Puerto Rico and, and South American countries and stuff. You know, the Latins are sometimes they're emotionally moved. And I mean, I they sent me to Guatemala for five weeks when I was 19 years old and just told me to go down there and don't sell anybody, <laughs> you know, and that was a big mistake. And they tried to kill me there. They turned my taxi cab over, kicked out all my windows. I thought I was going to die in Guatemala City. I mean, you know, and the same thing happened in Puerto Rico. I, I got, I, I, I saw a kid stick a knife when you're coming through the audience. I saw a kid stick a knife out trying to cut me on the way out. And I went to grab his arm and he pulled the hand back through. And it cut the inside of my palm where the knife slid back through. And I was like, you know, man, they're taking this way too serious. I mean, <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, and in, in Guatemala, the first thing they told me there was, oh, you have to start, you have to wear a mask. And I go, no, no, uh, this is my face. I'm not wearing a mask. And they said, no, this is Guatemala. You got to put a mask. They put a mask on me. And the way I got into the bad situation with the um, people on the cab was, you had to cut a deal with people that were walk or were driving around Guatemala City with a little flag on their car, and you'd flag them down as a cab. And I didn't speak a lick of Spanish. I kind of spoke American Indian. You know, you got to watch um, me go to Coliseum. And I wouldn't put the mask on because if they wouldn't take me to the Coliseum that I learned the first week, 
once I put that mask on, they knew who I was. I was a wrestler from America called the Black Angel. And the, I waited till I got in the alley and I leaned down and it was an old Buick this guy was driving, like maybe a 58 Buick, like a tank. And I leaned down behind his seat and I pulled that mask over my head and he looked in that rear view mirror and he crapped. He goes, ah, I started screaming and crying and slammed on the brakes and I'm going, no, keep going, keep going. And all of a sudden we were surrounded by Guatemalans and they were little bitty people. I mean, you know, they weren't like monsters, but they started rocking the cab and I'm laughing at them, antagonizing them. And pretty soon we're up on the side and next thing I know we're on the, I'm standing on the ceiling looking under the front seat of a Buick. And I'm standing on the dome light and they're trying to reach through and grab at me and they're kicking out the windows. And I started crying then like a kid and going, oh man, I'm going to die in Guatemala City. <laughs> this, this is not happening. And then all of a sudden it got dead silent. And I thought, oh, they're trying to trick me now, right? They're, they're acting like they're not there. And I looked down and I seen this white glove and a tan khaki sleeve and the guy's motioning with his hand for me to come out. And I'm looking, and I look down, and I see a guy with a chrome helmet on, an army guy with a little white, I mean, a tan shirt on with a little white dicky thing stuffed in his neck. And he's motioned for me to come out. I come out, and there were Guatemalans laying everywhere. They had head-butted, I mean, you know, took their guns and butted them in the head, women, kids, everything. They are all over the place. And they got me out and got me into the dressing room. And I learned a lesson that day. I learned not to put that mask on until I was in the building. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it was like one of those things that nobody could tell you. And, and actually, nobody spoke to me out there um, for five weeks. And you only wrestled on Saturday and Sunday. And the rest of the time, you just sat in a hotel room with no TV or nothing, you know. So it was an experience. But... It taught me a lot of things about crowd control. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I don't know anything about the history of Guatemalan professional wrestling, but it feels like a deep dive I need to do at some point. That sounds pretty insane. Well, let me, um, tell, you, let me tell you the very first night, Phil, because this was kind of weird, because nobody in the dressing room spoke English. I mean, actually, the first day I flew in there, nobody picked me up at the airport, so I slept on my bag for two days. And then finally, um, nobody's come to get me, and they gave me a one-way ticket to get there. And so I, I went around the airport. Anybody speak English? And a rent-a-car guy come out. And he looked at the Jose Azari was a promoter. He looked him up in the phone book, called him. They came and got me. But, you know, it was one of those things where I, I had no communication. I had a little dictionary that was Spanish-English, but that wasn't working good. And... When I went to the matches, the very first night, it was in the Coliseum that they had had the Olympics in. And these two Mexican brothers that were a tag team pulled me aside and they were, we were doing sign language. And they told me to come watch when they made their entrance to the ring. And if I hadn't watched them, I'd have been murdered the first night. But what they did is you could hear the announcer going, ah, and there was like, a dead space between that big entrance door to the ringside where people were sitting and there was a chain link fence that went 10 feet in the air around the hockey arena and the general admission were up in the bleachers and the stands around it 
And so I watched them because they were really wanting to t show me how to get to the ring. And I, I would have never thought of this on my own. And I, you know, if I could ever find them guys again, I'd take them. But this is what they did. They waited till they were introduced. And when they did, they kicked open the doors and they ran out about 10 feet, slammed on the brakes and backpedaled right back through the door. And it looked like rain. I mean, you know, it was rocks, oranges, grapefruit, apples. Anything anybody could carry in their pocket to throw, they unloaded on them in that dead space before ringside. And then when they were reloading, like they were getting something else out of their pocket, them two Mexicans, boom, they bolted for the ringside area. Once you oh, got to Lord. the ringside area, they would stop throwing stuff at you. So that was cool because it... I did the same thing. I mean, you know, because immediately when they said from North America, you know, the Black Angel, I stepped out and I didn't run like they did. I just started to walk and I got out about five, ten feet. And then I took off running back towards the thing and watched it come down. And then what it looked like, it was like out they were out of gas. I took off. But... Yeah, but you know what they did when you got the ringside, which was a new thing that nobody had told me about, is when I was climbing the stairs to get in the ring, and when I was on the apron, I'm looking at my opponent, and I kept feeling things stinging me. I felt them on my leg, I felt them on my back, I felt it on my neck, and I'm going, what are they doing with these spit wads or, you know, I couldn't figure it out, and I looked down, they were flicking cigarettes on me. They were flicking cigarettes, and it was burning me. It, burning me. it burnt me on my back, my legs, my arms, everywhere, until I got into the ring, and then they stopped flicking the cigarettes. But anyway, it was quite a... <laughs> so you were 19? Yeah. You were 19 when you went out? So did, was this idea that Eddie, Eddie Graham would send you down to Guatemala? Well, well if he makes it back alive... Yeah, well, yeah that's uh, the toughen you we'll up. Because, yeah, if you make it back alive, you'll appreciate making the towns every night here in Florida. Hey, this, <laughs> like sent me, this is funny, too, because it, I'm, you know, I'm in the process of probably writing a book. I've had a lot of people want to hear these stories, but he sent me from... Coming back to Guatemala, and I thought I was in a safe zone. He sent me to work the Mobile Territory that the field zone. And, of course, it's in partly in Florida. So I drove to Crestview, Florida, in the Panhandle for my first show. And I'm thinking I'm a veteran now, right? I've been in the business almost a year. <laughs> and this is what I've had. Well, you survived Guatemala. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and plus Florida was I was working with guys old enough to be my grandpa that all they did was tell me slow down kids slow down kids so anyway then I go to Crestview I walk in the dressing room Phil and I look and now when you when you went to a new territory it was very it was like going to a new school when you're a kid you had to make friends you had to have something good to say you had to get over you had to go around and the custom was is to walk in and shake everybody's hand and introduce yourself and so i walked in the dressing room and i looked to the right sitting in this little hot dressing room a folding chair i look and there's a freaking bear i see this bear sitting on his ass and he's got a collar on with a spike and a big long chain and i, I couldn't you know it, it just caught me so off guard i go what the hell so uh 
what's with the bear? I mean, I didn't even introduce myself yet, you know, and guys are going, oh, he's working tonight. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind automatically, now I'm going to come to this territory and I have to wrestle a freaking bear. And I go, so who's working with the bear? Oh, no, it's the same guy. He works with the bear. It's the guy that owns the bear. He's going to work with the bear, you know, and had a muzzle on the whole deal. (laughs) Then the very next night, I was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and I walk in the dressing room, but I still hadn't really gotten close to anybody. Um, I eventually, they tagged me up with Ricky Gibson, and I, I learned quite a bit from Ricky, but I go the next night, I'm in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, I walk in the dressing room, and there's the McGuire brothers, the two fattest twins in the world. And I made the mistake of saying, hey, I know you guys. I, I paid a quarter to see you at the Florida State Fair two years ago, sitting in a room when you had a little mini bike. <laughs> and they're looking like they didn't really want me to recognize them that way, you know. I'm going, so, so now I'm, I've just seen a bear and the two fattest guys in the world. But, you know, I'm going like, what kind of business did I get into here? So, anyway. <laughs> That's good. Was that Victor, the wrestling bear? He was like your... your uh Famous wrestling bear, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't one. remember which uh, one it was. I think it was Terrible <laughs> Ted. But, you know, we didn't get close. And that bear only worked that first night. And then I never saw him again. And the McGuire twins were only in for one week or something. I did see them. And, you know, they couldn't even get in and out of the ring. They had to take the bottom rope off to get them in. And then they... As a tag team, one one would stand in the corner until he'd get tagged. He wouldn't be on the outside on the apron. He was too fat to stand in, out there and then too fat to get in the ring. So, I mean, you know, it was a crappy match. I mean, they were horrible. I mean, Jack Briscoe and the guys that mentored me taught me to watch every match. And they taught me to go and watch every match and see who gets over and who doesn't. See why the guys are in the main event. Listen to the audience and what they're reacting to. And, you know, later on, you know, we talked about, like, the Bob Roop thing. And when I, when I was teaching, um, which, I, when I, which I really enjoyed doing the last part of my career, when I was helping teach talent, I would tell them, here's the deal. When you go out, If you were to interview a wrestling audience, if I walk to each person sitting on the front row and I'm holding a microphone and I said, is wrestling real or fake? And hold it down to their face, they would say fake. And you go, each one fake, each one fake, each one fake, all the way around. I say, now, if I go to the same audience the second time and I say, have you ever seen two guys that really got into it like... You know, you know that this one was a real one. Oh, yeah, I remember this match. Oh, yeah, I remember that match. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I remember this match. Uh, yeah, I remember that. And I said, that's what you want to be. That's the person that you want to be that's working. You want the re- them to remember you as they weren't sure whether you were the real deal or you were just a, a show. And I said, you know, that's the way you want to, you know, because it, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, is no matter where you're on the card, your actual goal is to have people remember your name and your face and who you are out of all of those people they saw that night. At least to say, 
And I watch Steve Kern, and I don't know if he's goofy or if he just don't know how to wrestle, but he looks like he's real. So whether they, you know, love you or hate you, just say remember you, you know. You don't want to just blend in and nobody goes, well, I don't remember his match. Who won? You know what I'm saying? So that's, that was- I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great uh way to sort of tie back into the mood dogs match because i think that feud was a feud where people would go there and maybe they'll see you know see all the other things going on in the memphis cardinal like we talked about before memphis was in many ways a promotion where it was more on the entertainment side than the grappling side but i don't think anybody left those moon dogs matches thinking that that was anything but four lunatics trying to kill absolutely absolutely set us apart we had been tagged by the greatest tag team and the greatest guy that ever went through there, Jackie Fargo. And we had to do something to live up to him. And that was um, something that was, you know, was a real goal. But, you know, even Stan would say when we come back, he says, man, that got out of hand. You know, and to me, I mean, I was, I don't want to say that because that's a little, that's a little sexual, but I was getting off. I mean, you know, because it, I I was in my heyday, and I, you know, I really liked it. I mean, you know, I loved blood. I wanted to bleed more than anybody, and I mean, I wanted I wanted people to believe that that he didn't. Ha- that's no blood capsule because he's still bleeding. I mean, you know, so and where I carried my blade was unusual. I had the whole thing down. And even guys to this day, like Terry Taylor, said, I learned so much by watching you work that even when guys are punching you in the head, you look like you're getting color. You'd just rake your forehead, even though you weren't. Because when it came time, it wasn't something unusual that you were doing. And they go, look, he's getting color now. You, You worked with your audience to the fact that, you know, whatever was happening that would cause you to bleed, you would go across your forehead like you were getting color. And then when it came, if it wasn't enough, you just kept going back. I carried my blade in my mouth. And so I'd have to go, I'd have to keep spitting it out into my hand and then adjusting it because it, I had a real sharp side and a real, real straight point on my blade. And I'd had it taped. So I kept I kept it right between my cheek and my gums on my right side of my mouth. And when it would come time, I'd have to spit it into my hand and then look at it as best I could and then go for it. And sometimes I had it backwards and it didn't cut. It would kind of, you know, it would kind of rake, but it would, you know, pull it apart. But once I hit the side where it was just sharp, I mean, I could go right down and come clear across or just enough. And I knew by the way I'd be late, bent over, I knew by the way it was dropping on the mat, whether it was coming or it was just barely coming. And I knew I either had to do it again or I, that was enough. <laughs> it's coming. So, so you, would be t- you would be taking flat back bumps and suplexes and stuff like that with a razor blade oh, yeah. in your mouth? Oh, yeah. I mean, like... like you like, never cut like, your face? You never cut your lips no, open? No, but I lost my blade twice. And when I did, it was one time against Bob Orton Jr. Mike Graham and I were wrestling Bob Orton Jr. and Bob Orton Sr. in uh, the Armory in Tampa. 
And Eddie Graham, we had a rail and a second story where the dressing rooms were, and they would come out on the rail and watch some matches. And Eddie Graham would give you a finish that was 10 minutes long. I mean, you know, it was like you had to have the mind of a guy from MIT to remember to finish. But he, he would watch it and want to make sure that you did everything he told you to do. And I was supposed to get color with Bob Orton Jr. And I pulled my blade out when it was going to run me into the post. And as I come running into the post, I slapped the post with my hand. And boom, I watched my blade go sailing into the audience. And I went, holy shit. And I'm looking up at Eddie, and I know he's waiting to see me bleed me, right? So I told Bobby Orton, I said, hey, man, you got to bust me open the hard way because Eddie's watching. So that was a real mistake. He took my hair. He, I was sitting <laughs> on my butt. He took my hair and wrapped his hand around, and he started punching me in the forehead. And nothing was happening except for knots were popping up all over my forehead. I mean, he's really potatoing me trying to get me to bleed. So so I said to him, I said, run me into your dad's knee. And this was, this was a great story for us. And, and Randy later on, being his grandpa, was on. <laughs> his dad, Randy uh, talked about it because his grandpa said Steve was so stiff. But anyway... So uh, Bobby said, Dad, put your knee up. And I knew I had to either bust my eye open or something to be bleeding when I hit Orton Sr. And I hit his knee so hard, I blew him right off of the apron. And it almost blew out his hip. He was pissed. And I still wasn't bleeding. And when I came back to the dressing room, you know, of course, Eddie's looking at my forehead with a look like a golf course. And he's going... What the hell happened, kid? How come you didn't get no color? And I had to tell him the truth. Well, I lost my blade. And he goes, that's what you get for carrying it in your mouth. You know, most of the guys taped it to their finger. Right. But I was never comfortable with having something taped to my finger because I figured I'd carve you up my opponent at the same time if I didn't get it broke. Dusty tried to show me how to tape it to my finger. And I looked at Dusty's forehead and said, you know, I don't want to look like you, man. You're really <laughs> ugly. And Joe LaDuke, same thing. They went up and down. And even King Curtis, who I loved to death, and King Curtis would say, brother, tip it to your finger. And I'm going, nah, man, I'm carrying mine in my mouth. And then the worst thing that could ever happen to me happened with the sheep herders in Nashville. And... I was working, it was Jonathan Boyd and Rip Morgan, his nephew, wasn't um, Luke. And me and Stan were wrestling them, and Jonathan Boyd hit me with the flag. And when he hit me with the flag, I had my blade in my hand, and it knocked me backwards, and boom, there goes my blade into the audience again. I said to Jonathan Boyd, because I knew he carried his, he would give his to the referee, I said, you still got your blade? And he goes, yeah, mate. And I go, um, I just lost mine. He said, I'll take care of that. And he cuts me, right? <laughs> oh, Phil, 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 he reaches up and cuts me on my temple, my main artery. And I'm looking, and it's almost like a pulsating spray coming off of my head. 
and I was out on the floor in the audience, and every time I turned, anybody with light-colored clothing, I was spraying blood all over them. And I'm going, oh, my God. And it was oh. pulsating out of my forehead, but off to the side, and I'd never been cut on my temple. And I, I grabbed my forehead, and I could, as I grabbed it, it just my hand filled up with blood so much that quick. I said, oh, man, I got to get to the dressing room. And... I mean, Jonathan Boyd was turned on because that I was spraying blood like a faucet was turned on. The people were freaking out because that they'd never seen blood squirting out of somebody's head like that. And, uh, you know, like Stan flipped out. And anyway, I fought my way back to the dressing room, but they wanted to keep kicking my ass because it would look so good. I got into the dressing room, and I'll never forget, I sat down on a folding chair, and I was holding my hand on my head because I could just feel it pouring out. And I had lost a lot. And I looked in between my legs in that folding chair, and it was full. The blood was full right there. And I looked at my, my tights. I had on these white, um, black and white zebra um, wrestling tights and white boots. And my, both of my boots were red, and so were my tights were black and red. And I'm going, oh, man. And Tojo Yamamoto came over to me, and he's looking at me, and he says, oh, too much, too much, call ambulance. And so they called an ambulance. The ambulance came, and I thought, oh, man, I'm going to be all right as soon as the paramedics come in, right? I've never had this happen. And so the paramedics come in, and they decide they're going to put, like, a turban on my head. They just start wrapping my, my whole head because they can't tell where it's coming from. And they go, well... We'll take you to the hospital and, and let a, a doctor, you know, handle getting it stopped. And I'm going, man, you guys got to stop it before we leave. I mean, I can't hardly even stand up. And anyway, Stan went with me in the ambulance, and my blood pressure dropped. It dropped unbelievable. I mean, you know, from 120 over 80, let's say, it dropped to like 60 over 40. On my trip to the hospital, they're going, which hospital do you want to go to? And I'm going... I don't give a damn the closest one. And the guy, the guy says on the radio calling the hospital, he said, we got a bleeder. We got a bleeder. And then the guy goes, we're losing him. And I remember sitting up on the, the gurney thing. I said, what do you mean you're losing me? And, and the blood's coming off. That's whole thing that they put on my head was red. And that was coming down through the side and they got me in the emergency room. They rushed me into the surgery thing right there, and Stan kicked open the doors and said, don't lose him. I remember him saying that. He <laughs> didn't tell you, too. And I'm going, I'm going to die. I am going to die. And they called out my blood pressure again, and it was something like 40 over 20. And they're going, hold on, hold on. Try to hold on, mister. Try to hold on. And I'm going, I'm doing my best, and the guy unwrapped that turban, and he looked at me and goes, where are you bleeding? Do you know where you're bleeding from? And I put my finger right up on my temple, and I touched my temple, and he took a bucket of water, and right on that surgery table just splashed the whole thing on my head. And he said, I see it. I see it. And he, and he stopped the blood. Then he stitched it up, and he got it closed, and he said, we got you. We got you. And he said, I'm going to have to give you blood. You've, you've lost way too much blood. It, it, and then he explained to me, they were trying to explain about bleeding to death. And they said, here's the deal. He said, 
you lose 50% of the blood at one time like this. He said it takes 24 hours to build it up, 50% at each time. So in other words, it's going to take 24 hours for you to build it back 50%. Another 24 hours, it'll take you to build back 25%. Anyway, so they wanted to give me a transfusion. Well, AIDS had just come out, and I'm going, ain't no way. I said, don't give me no blood. I don't trust nobody's blood. So I stayed in there on a um, intravenous feeding for two days and built up the blood and came back to work. So anyway. I mean, I, so Steve, I can't think of a better uh, anecdote to end a podcast about blood on than Jonathan Boyd almost murdering you in Nashville, Tennessee. This has been... Well, call the Call Luke Williams right now. I'll give you his phone number. He lives down here in Florida with me. He'll tell you. He can remember the whole thing, and he wasn't even in the match, but he'll say, yeah, I remember the night Jonathan almost killed Kern by cutting his temple. That is is tremendous. This has been an absolute blast. I have, and I think this is, this was hearing all these stories and just, I've really enjoyed myself, and I think the folks listening to this pod have really enjoyed it too. Steve, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you doing this for me, my friend. Um, And we will be back next week with another episode of Wave the Blade.